Ice Theaters, the market's most immersive and high-end premium format. Because the light shall be treated like sound coming from everywhere. Discover the Ice Theaters experience and embark on an immersive odyssey beyond reality. Ice Theaters, meet us at CinemaCon with 2113A. The show has grown to be the most significant gathering in the cinema industry globally. We have about 100 countries worth of people, exhibitors and suppliers that come to the show. All the major studios support it now. And this CinemaCon should be really fantastic. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the Pulse of Theatrical Exhibition, here for the preview episode of our special CinemaCon 2023 edition brought to you by Ice Theaters. And to kick things off here in the preview episode, we have John Fithian, the outgoing president and CEO of the National Association of Theater Owners, joining us in the feature segment. He's going to be going over the last 30 years years of his role here at NATO, three decades leading the trade association. He is retiring upon the end of CinemaCon 2023. That look back with John Fithian is coming at the second half of the episode. But up front, we've got my colleague and co-host, Rebecca Pauly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro, joining the panel, and Romeo Duchenne from the Box Office Company. But guys, let's uh, let's dive right into the news segment here because we have a lot to cover before we get into our CinemaCon 2023 wish list from the studio presentations. Rebecca, some news coming in from the industry Unfortunately, another Chapter 11 headline of a big company for U.S. exhibition. Yeah, this is uh, Chapter 11 was filed by National Cinemedia, the largest in cinema advertising network in North America. They have said that they plan to operate just same as normal throughout the process, which is, is definitely good considering we are entering the summer months. And I got to imagine that's a high demand period for anyone looking to advertise to moviegoers in the pre-show. That's right. I think Q2 is going to bring a number of very exciting titles on the market. And I think the stock market reflects the confidence of this restructuring deal from NCM. Its stock price actually doubled after filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, I think all in all, we are all expecting NCM to come back stronger from this Chapter 11 situation that they're currently in. Uh, on the positive side of the news, we did get some records from Cineplex recording uh, good numbers in the beginning of April, especially off the back of that Super Mario Brothers movie. Absolutely, yeah. If you're looking at Q1 as a whole, box office for that quarter was 79% of what it was in 2019, which, as we've stated before, is, is a number that they've reached despite not as many films hitting theaters uh, in this first quarter of 2023 as did in the first quarter of 2019. And their Cine Club subscription program also has hit their own record, reaching above the 100,000 members mark. So we're going to continue seeing these financial results, these quarterly earnings calls from various public companies, and uh, we'll keep you up to date on the upcoming episodes in between uh, whatever CinemaCon news is coming. Guys, I can't even really think past CinemaCon at this point so no it's going to dominate the conversation i think for all of us so let's uh let's look forward at least to this coming weekend before monday comes and cinema con is our entire 
live and the focus of our livelihoods. Let's start with new releases here. Romeo, you've been looking at the tracking of some of these titles. Evil Dead Rise from Warner Brothers. This was a movie that was originally intended to hit HBO Max with the new management there. It is going theatrical. We've got an opening weekend here range of 11 to 16 million. Not huge numbers. The positive sign here, Romeo, is that in terms of screen count, it doesn't look like this is going to be one of those 1,200 screen-wide releases from Warner Brothers. There seem to be a good number of uh, screens already committed early on pre-release. Yeah, I don't know if uh, our audience knows that, but we also develop business intelligence tools for movie studio, and we can track the number of screen and showtime that are being booked for any movies around the world. And uh, right now, I can see that uh, we already have uh, roughly 2,100 theater that booked Evil Dead Rise uh, for uh, this uh, upcoming weekend. Good figure, especially when we look at the performance of something like uh, Magic Mike's Last Dance, which was another title from Warner Brothers that was supposed to be an HBO Max release, ends up going theatrical, but only ends up opening, I think, around 1,500 theaters. This early on, we're taping this a number of days before the, the screen count is, uh, is released by the studio. We have confidence that this is going to be able to break through to more, to more moviegoers, to more theaters. Always a positive sign here because there's going to be strong competition. The other opener coming this weekend is The Covenant from director Guy Ritchie starring Jake Gyllenhaal. A soft opening weekend uh, forecast that we have for this between four and eight million. And then, Daniel, on the specialty side, uh, we have a pair of limited releases. The historical drama Chevalier from Searchlight Pictures and from Sony Pictures Classics Carmen. Uh, you actually interviewed filmmakers behind both of those new releases, and you can check out those features on boxofficepro.com. But guys, enough about uh, the films that are coming up this weekend. Let's talk about films that are coming up throughout the rest of 2023 and into 2024, because uh, about this time next week, we're going to be looking forward to seeing a lot about upcoming releases at CinemaCon. We just got confirmation as we're recording this that we're going to be seeing a screening of The Flash is, is going to be presented by Warner Brothers there. That's definitely one that I think everyone in the industry has been curious about. But, you know, guys, let's break it down by studio. Well, let's start with Sony, since that's going to be the opening night's uh, studio presentation that Monday at the Coliseum in Caesars Palace. Um, I don't know about you guys. I think the number one title that I want to see the most from in this Sony presentation is the upcoming Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse movie that's coming out, uh, I believe, in June. And then trying to see if there's anything revealed from the sequel beyond the Spider-Verse. Not really a sequel. It's going to be the third movie in this franchise. That's slated for March 2024. And if you've got a copy of the print edition of Box Office Pro's CinemaCon 2023 issue, you'll find the interview I had with co-director Kemp Powers. Everything that he said about the movie got me excited to see more. So that's probably at the top of my list. What can we see from those Spider-Verse movies? How about you guys? What's, what's on your list from Sony? On my side, you you picked the movie I wanted to I wanted to say obviously across the Spider Verse can't wait for that one. But if I need to pick another movie from the upcoming slate from Sony, I would say probably Equalizer Three. I was crazy about the first two ones. To me, this is the perfect action movie, just like John Wick. We are observing right now great figures from John Wick Four all around the world, and so I, I feel a very confident about Equalizer Number Three. Let's not forget that it's already a hundred million dollar franchise. Well, more than that, I think the first one and the second one did $100 million globally, each one. So, so yeah, I can't wait for that one. 
and I'm a huge fan of Denzel. So you can't say no to Denzel. Absolutely. No. How about you, Rebecca? What's on, what's on your wish list for Sony? I mean, I'm just kind of uh, curious to see what the Sony Super Mario's Brother movie uh, victory lap is going to look like. Are we going to get some insight as to what other sequels, spin-offs, franchise situations might be going on? If you look at like the entirety of uh, of Sony's upcoming schedule here, I mean, there are several franchises that I'm definitely curious to see what direction they're going in. You have their kind of uh, Marvel Spider-Man villain series that uh, had its most recent installment with Morbius. We have Craven the Hunter, uh, another another villain in the Spider-Man verse coming out later this year. I don't we've seen really nothing from that in terms of marketing, I don't think. We saw we saw something at Cine Europe last year actually. Uh, you had star uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson come on stage in person and introduce uh, his excitement for the movie. That's actually one I do expect we're going to be seeing something from Sony in this presentation. That movie's now been rescheduled to, I believe, October of 2023. I would also expect to see some sort of uh, information or footage or something on the yet unnamed Ghostbusters sequel, which is kind of their uh, their Christmas movie this year coming out on December 20th. And then we know really uh, not a ton about this next film, but it's probably of the upcoming Sony ones. It's the one uh, outside of Spider-Verse that I'm most excited for. Uh, Ridley Scott directing uh, Napoleon, the historical kind of action epic that famously uh, Stanley Kubrick tried to do forever and it just didn't didn't pan out. Um, for this one, Sony is partnering with Apple, uh, which is uh, producing this film. I'm, you know, Ridley Scott, um, whatever he does, I'm, I'm curious. I'm there to see it. So I'm, I'm hopeful we get some footage there. I, I have to play my French on that side too. I mean, I can't wait for Napoleon uh, to see some yeah, to see some images. Seeing Joachim Phoenix uh, playing Napoleon, I can't wait. As a French, I can't wait to see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, Napoleon is a, is, a, is a big figure in France. Not a, It's not like we adore Napoleon because he was like, well, you know. So yeah, that could be a very interesting topic and a very interesting character. And we're talking about, in this case, releasing a film from Apple through Sony, a distributor that is very exhibition friendly, very exhibition forward. Um, I think that's going to be the big question mark, a little bit less on the movie itself and more on that release pattern in this partnership between Apple and Sony. I think that's one of those big questions where I can understand if we don't get to see too much of it. Of course, Sony's only releasing the film. This is an Apple film, an Apple production. Whether that gets incorporated and how that gets incorporated to the Sony presentation is one of those big questions that we all have heading into Monday night in Las Vegas. But let's keep on moving forward here because you mentioned this at the start of this segment, Rebecca, the flash from Warner Brothers is screening in its entirety at CinemaCon. It was something that had been rumored for a while. We now have confirmation that audiences at CinemaCon will be seeing this film for the first time. Warner Brothers has a lot writing on this title opening on June 16th because it'll also lead into the release of Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom this December. I expect these two movies, these two DCEU titles, to be a big chunk of that Warner Brothers presentation. But there are a number of other movies here that we're interested to find out more about. 
Yeah, no disrespect to uh, to the DCEU, to Jason Momoa, to Ezra Miller, but I'm just going to be waiting for anything Barbie related. <laughs> oh, absolutely. The other one on that list is going to be Dune Part 2 from director Denis Villeneuve. Romeo, this is a movie that performed, I think, under expectations because it was released day and date uh, through Warner Brothers and HBO Max. That will not be the case for the second part. What are you expecting to see from a title like that? It's, a, it's difficult for me to speak about June because I didn't really like the first one. And I was, and I put so much hope into that movie, so much hope. And I had the feeling of, I just watched a, a two hour trailer long. Um, so my feeling is that, of course, I'm eager and I can't wait to see the next one because I already watched a three hour trailer of June 2. I'm excited to see the story actually start. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's funny you guys say that. That day and date, I mean, as it affected the box office, which it certainly did, I mean, I still feel like the first Dune was one of the first really solid indicators we got that PLF was going to be a huge part of the recovery story. And talking about PLF, we have to talk about this title that we still haven't seen anything from of substance, Furiosa, part of George Miller's Mad Max universe. Mad Max Fury Road probably being the best movie going experience I've had in the last 20, 25 years. Honestly, it's it's one of those landmark going to the movies and walking out completely amazed moments that I've had. Yeah, this is an example of a movie that is still in production and talking about movies from Warner Brothers, still in production, but that there is a lot of excitement for. The sequel to Todd Phillips' standalone take on Joker. Romeo, you already shared your excitement for one upcoming Joaquin Phoenix movie. Joker 2 coming out in 2024 as well, currently being shot. Uh, what are your expectations for this? Well, my expectations are high, are high. I, I hope they will be able to, to show us some images in downtown. I'm sure they will not because they just shot at some scene in downtown LA a couple of weeks ago. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, it, it will be Christmas for me if they show me anything, but box office war is going to be huge. I mean, the, the first one was a big success all around the world. I don't remember the number. I think they did like a billion dollar worldwide, something like that for the first one. Oh, yeah. I can't wait for the second one. So that Joker sequel is coming out in 2024, I think, as Romeo mentions. It's probably a little bit early to see any real footage from this movie. We've seen some paparazzi shot of footage taking place in cities like Los Angeles. So let's move on to the next studio here, guys, because we've got Disney coming in with a shorter presentation than usual. Well, not really than usual. Disney will do this at CinemaCon. They'll set you up with a very macro 30 minute long presentation where they basically put a map of releases and then do a screening. They're screening the entirety of The Boogeyman from 20th Century Studios, a movie that was originally supposed to go on streaming through Hulu, but that was actually put in theaters instead. Uh, that's coming out in June 2023. That makes me excited to hear the reaction on this because you have to think Disney through 20th Century Studios is confident about this title. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly the impression that I get from this. I mean, given the fact that they took it from day and date to theatrical exclusivity, they're getting it at this first CinemaCon screening. And just the fact that horror has been, you know, doing pretty well over these last few years during the pandemic, during the industry's recovery. And in addition to that, I mean... I got to imagine, I got to hope that we're going to uh, be hearing some information about the various kind of franchises that Disney has under their belt. Pixar, if we can kind of consider that its own franchise, it's it's kind of uh, 
fallen behind, fallen a little bit into the uh, direct to Disney Plus, direct to streaming avenue over, over the era of the pandemic. I'm curious as to whether we're going to get any sort of updates uh, as to the release date of Avatar 3. Uh, Disney definitely going to be taking a well-deserved victory lap regarding the box office of Avatar 2, The Way of Water. I mean, considering how many times that movie got delayed, and like part of it was the pandemic, but part of it was just James Cameron taking a long time to make this movie. I'm not sure if, if we're going to be hearing anything about uh, whether Avatar 3 will be sticking in December 24. I can't imagine we will, but that definitely is one of my uh, biggest questions kind of about Disney as a whole. In addition to what they're doing about Star Wars on the big screen, I mean, there were some recent announcements at their own kind of uh, trade expo, but it's kind of, yeah, they're, they're going to be looking for a resurgence there, I would imagine, because mostly now, nowadays, Star Wars is, is like a TV franchise. Yeah, we really haven't heard too much from Star Wars at the movies for a number of years from Disney, actually. You mentioned that Avatar 3 release date in December 2024. At the very least, it's already shot because he shot these movies simultaneously, right? So they have it ready in some sort of form. Is it close to that final form? Are they going to tweak it? Are the effects going to be improved? Those are big questions that we still have to answer. Romeo, on your end, what are you expecting to see from Disney's presentation? Well, personally, I can't wait to see uh, some um, some images from um, Indiana Jones. The the next one, um, Harrison Ford is taking uh, taking the role back. So, so yeah, I can't wait to see that. And uh, and tracking looks great right now. I mean, that's a movie that could aim for um, more than two hundred million dollars domestic wise. So, so so yeah, I can't wait to see Harrison Ford and some Indiana Jones. That's typically my kind of movie. And when we see how Uncharted did uh, a couple of years ago. I'm so confident about Indiana Jones. Well, I can tell you guys on a personal level, I'm not sure we'll be able to get to see much, if anything, from Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, which is coming out on May 2024. Uh, but if we do, I'll be really excited. That's one of those quiet, you know, former Fox franchises that I was really hoping would find new life under the Disney ownership. It's been slow going to get it back running, but uh, so far the first three films in that franchise, I think have more than exceeded my expectations. And another kind of uh, bought it with the house, I don't know, buy one, get one title that, uh, that Disney has upcoming, Deadpool 3. I feel like, uh, you know, there's, there's going to be even money on some kind of meta funny Ryan Reynolds quippy uh, video about uh, Disney releasing their first Deadpool movie and getting into that uh, snarky R-rated territory. Uh, one that we haven't seen a lot of, but like definitely Hugh Jackman coming back as Wolverine is a big deal. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I like the first two. I'm not like, I didn't really know a ton about the character, but like I had a good time with them. Let's move forward now with the Universal and Focus presentation. Uh, Universal and Focus usually team up to do a one-two punch at CinemaCon. A number of big titles here. Uh, let's start off with on the schedule, May 19, 2023, means we'll probably get to see a lot from Fast X at CinemaCon. Elsewhere here on the Universal side, we've got a couple of original titles. One of them you interviewed the filmmaker for, Rebecca, the dog comedy Strays. I know. This is uh, R-rated uh, dogs, but what if they talk and have foul mouths and are, are, are little, you know, little jerks? I don't know. I feel really hopeful about this movie. I know, like, I've been talking about it with friends, and they're like, on paper, it just looks like kind of like a short film. Like, uh-huh, uh, dogs, what if they curse? 
I might be putting my foot in my mouth with this one, but I, uh, I really loved the director's previous film, Barb and Stargard of Vista Del Mar. Daniel, I know you did too. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited for Strace. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful there. It's one of my most anticipated of the summer, along with Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer is the upcoming film from Christopher Nolan, who will be at CinemaCon in person this year. Uh, yeah, I, I do expect to see quite a bit from Oppenheimer at that Universal presentation. I think it's the kind of movie, you know, where you'll see that the market the, the domestic market share will be probably less than 40% because that's typically the kind of movie that can outperform very, very well internationally, uh, especially in market like, yeah, I don't want to say that market because you can hear my accent, but especially like France. I mean, in France, we all love uh, Christopher Nolan. I have to ask you guys, uh, because another film that is a, a really highly anticipated film coming up on Universal Slate is Wicked, the adaptation or two-part, the first part of a two-part adaptation of the, you know, gigantic, huge phenomenon uh, Broadway show. Did you guys see the uh, the first images kind of went out on Twitter over the weekend? Oh, uh, what, what was the impact of that? Because I know that's a movie, come on, that has to be guaranteed money when it finally comes out. It feels like the musical's been in development for years and years. And I was curious, like, are we going to see anything about uh, about Wicked at CinemaCon? The fact that they are starting to roll out images now, the week ahead, says that we're probably going to see something. Um, but yeah, I mean, the images did come out, but did I see them? No, because they're very dark. Uh, that was the that was the narrative on Twitter over the weekend that like you cannot see the people in these shots. Like they're they're they look like it's. Ugh. So that's not a great first step in the marketing there. And uh, hopefully they'll be able to turn it around next week. And talking about turning things around, we've got from Universal a title that I really hope we see in the presentation, Twisters, the sequel to Twister, uh, coming out in July 2024. Again, it's probably way too early, but if we get any sort of indication of what this can look like, I would be excited to see that. And another old IP that is coming back to theaters, a new take on The Exorcist through Bloomhouse. That's scheduled in October 2023. Now, Rebecca, I see Bloomhouse. I see IP that's beloved by horror fans. I see an October release date. I get really nervous that Universal is going to put that day and date on Peacock the way they did with the last two Halloween movies from David Gordon Green. I don't think they're doing that, though, because we already have that role being fulfilled by something called Five Night at Freddy's. What is that? That's coming out in October this year, right? So this is an adaptation of a popular horror video game uh, that's kind of like horror Chuck E. Cheese animatronic type of thing. I don't think we really have not, maybe we've seen a few images of it, Romeo, so far. I don't, I don't think we've even seen a trailer, but like putting a horror release day and date in 2023, I mean, that's not. Yeah. Uh, who knows how, how, how audiences are going to be looking at that day and date proposition. It went from being like, ooh, it's the pandemic. It's exciting. I could see a movie theater movie at home to be like, oh, they're dumping this. You know, how good could this possibly be if it's available on the same day? But maybe it's just us. We'll, we'll see how this plays out. And one title or, or one, I guess, brand that uh, moviegoers are always excited for and that uh, the exhibitors at CinemaCon are always excited for uh, times 10, times 20, times 100. Uh, Tom Cruise, we are going to uh, be seeing the next film in the Mission Impossible franchise, uh, the seventh in the franchise, Dead Reckoning, coming out this summer. Uh, yeah, definitely curious as to what we're going to be seeing from that and from Mission Impossible 8. 
uh, as part of the Paramount presentation. I'm just surprised they're even calling it the Paramount presentation. At this point, just call it the Tom Cruise presentation featuring other Paramount pictures. Featuring Martin Scorsese. Yeah, and that's another one. Well, we, we have confirmation now that Martin Scorsese will be attending CinemaCon 2023. He's going to be part of the filmmaker lunch on Thursday. Paramount is releasing Scorsese's Killers of a Flower Moon, an Apple film, in theaters this October. That has to be right next to the top of my list for that Paramount presentation after seeing whatever stunt that Tom Cruise has to debut at CinemaCon. I also want to take that first look on Killers of a Flower Moon. Who knows if it's going to be part of that presentation? Because like Ridley Scott's Napoleon, this is an Apple title. It's only being distributed by Paramount. To what extent are we going to get that previewed? But that is my big question for that Paramount uh, presentation at CinemaCon. It sounds like the elephant in the room. We didn't really talk about that, but Martin Scorsese, come on, that's huge. And um, when was the latest movie you released? And this Killers of the Flower Moon, I feel like we saw the first, like the first look image of this film. Like, it's been a year. Uh, we've, I've, yeah, I've been waiting for this movie, like on on tenterhooks uh, for sure. The one that is coming up that I'm kind of curious about. I was not a, a teenage boy or, or a young young man in the early aughts, so the Transformers franchise was never like super on my radar. We do have uh, the next one in the franchise, Transformers Rise of the Beasts, uh, that is coming out soon. We have a feature uh, on that in our CinemaCon issue. Absolutely. And I think a lot of expectations are are being placed on director Stephen Capel Jr.'s uh, take on the Transformers franchise, Transformers Rise of the Beasts, which is coming out this June, because that will be the real test to see how much more life this franchise has in it. It was, I think, a cornerstone global performer in the 2000s, 2010s. Is there anything left in the tank there? I think it's going to be down to that uh, June release. And now let's move it forward to Lionsgate, which will be closing up the studio presentations at CinemaCon 2023. Uh, I do expect to hear a little bit about Joyride, which is a comedy coming out this July. We'll be seeing the whole thing if uh, it's the, the screening yeah. that's closing out uh, the final final day of CinemaCon. So hopefully we should be seeing some of it. What I do think we'll be seeing uh, a lot more of, however, is going to be Expendables 4, uh, the new installment in this Expendables franchise, which I thought we really wouldn't get to see again after the Expendables 3 didn't perform at the box office. To be fair... I think a pristine digital print of Expendables 3 leaked early and piracy just completely wrecked uh, the momentum of that movie. They're retooling it. Uh, Stallone is back. I don't know who exactly from my childhood is going to be coming back with him as a co-star, but I do expect that to be a big part of the Lionsgate presentation this year. Well, And last year, I know, uh, Daniel, for you, uh, one of the big highlights of just the year CinemaCon total was what we saw uh, of the most recent John Wick movie that's in theaters now. Uh, This year at CinemaCon, I would imagine we'll be seeing something uh, from Ballerina, which is the John Wick spinoff starring Ana de Armas. So that's, I mean, we haven't seen anything from that. It's definitely, uh, I think, a smart move on Lionsgate's part to continue on with their John Wick franchise to kind of expanding it out uh, from Keanu Reeves, because like, you know, he can't do this forever. The guy's going to have to like, you know, I believe if anyone can like keep doing heavy, intense uh, action stuff, like into the twilight years of their career, it's Tom Cruise and then second place Keanu. But uh, yeah, I'm curious to see how they're going to expand that John Wick world uh, into ballerina. 
But since since I since I've watched uh, No Time to Die, Anna de Armas uh, action scene, I can't wait for a ballerina. I mean, it makes sense right. for makes sense for us, and it makes me think also about this movie. Uh, I think that Universal released it a few years ago, um, Atomic Blonde. Yes, from uh, David Leach. Actually, you you mentioned that movie. That's from the co-director of the original John Wick. Uh, I love Atomic Blonde with Charlize Theron. I believe that's actually a Focus Features release in like that weird period where Focus Feature was like doing a lot more genre movies than they're doing now. But no, absolutely. One of my favorite uh, action movies of recent years. And Ana de Armas in No Time to Die, scene stealing. I mean, that's the one thing of No Time to Die that, that I take with me that I remember from you know Daniel Craig's last installment in the role is just that scene stealing turn from Ana de Armas. You could have given her a Bond spinoff and she would have easily been able to sell it. So it's a really good move from Lionsgate to tie her down with Ballerina, with this John Wick spinoff, uh, probably the one title on the Lionsgate calendar that I'm most looking forward to seeing. But fair to say that general audiences are going to be looking towards another Lionsgate title to see what we can find out about this. This is the relaunching of the Hunger Games franchise with a prequel movie. I mean, I don't know. I kind of feel like the Hunger Games is one of those franchises that was huge at the time and has kind of fallen off. I'm not sure that anyone really talks about it anymore. Uh, that said, what was another franchise we were saying that about, you know, this time last year, Avatar, and that worked out okay. Yeah, this is one where I'm, I'm definitely curious to see any footage at all. Consider like a big part of the first, uh, well, it wasn't trilogy, I guess it was, it was four movies, was, uh, you know, Jennifer Lawrence. And the, I mean, I feel like, the franchise and her as the upcoming star as the Oscar winner going into this big kind of blockbuster mode. I mean, I don't know without Jennifer Lawrence at the helm, what's uh, what? The I mean, we say that right, like. but we just spoke about a, a John Wick spinoff with Anna de Armas, and that you know us having some faith in something like that. And we also are coming off of a Creed Rocky spinoff that Rocky isn't even in, so you can pull that off, right? Even if you have a protagonist that is important to the core franchise, and then you transition and pivot to something else, it can work. I'm not sure Hunger Games has that going for it. Looking at the Lionsgate slate, it's, it's, it's great to see Lionsgate showing so so much movies, so much movies like that. I mean, that's that's big big size movies. So so and and, and not just one for for this year. When you when you see their, their slate, they have a, a lot of different movies like that. So. I think it's great overall for Lionsgate to have that slate uh, that is coming. That is, yeah. It's it's a real sign of ambition, as you mentioned, Romeo, from a company that wasn't able to come out with too many titles so far in the pandemic era. It feels like now that John Wick Chapter 4 is out, broke so many records for the distributor, that they can follow that up with other titles that can perform maybe not as well, but close to as well with a very varied slate. Uh, and that wraps it up for the studio presentations that we're looking forward to here at CinemaCon 2023. To our listeners, you can find out all the developments from CinemaCon all of next week with new daily episodes of the Box Office Podcast. So don't forget to subscribe and share. The first episode in that series is coming up on Monday. Rebecca, Romeo, thank you so much for joining us here once again for this preview episode of everything happening at CinemaCon 2023 next week. We've got coming up next in our feature segment, an interview with John Fithian, the outgoing president and CEO of the National Association of Theater Owners, looking back at more than 30 years of a career in this industry. 
And now what everyone's been waiting for, our feature interview with John Fithian. After more than 30 years of being the president and CEO of the National Association of Theater Owners, John joins me in a conversation looking back at his entire career in this industry. John, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Let's start at the beginning, John. Uh, you've been part of this industry for, for many years. How did you first get into the radar, into the world of the National Association of Theater Owners? If I'm not mistaken, it was his outside counsel during uh, Bill Kurtosian's tenure at the association? Yeah, that is correct. In, uh, in 1992, NATO was looking for additional lawyer slash lobbyist help in Washington, D.C. There were a variety of issues pending in the Congress and in the regulatory branches of the government. And so uh, Bill Cartosian and others at NATO hired me as outside counsel. And I served as outside counsel for NATO for eight years. Of all the clients I had at my law firm, and I had a bunch of clients, I found theater owners to be the most passionate, committed, energetic, people I'd ever worked with. And as a lawyer at a big law firm, I had an opportunity to serve you know, as counsel to a lot of boards uh, of various organizations and got to attend all their board meetings. And, and I just noticed something very different about the board meetings of NATO, which were that these people were just, their work was also their pleasure and their life's calling and, and showing movies in cinemas was was so contagious that I just really fell in love with the members of the association. Also, I had I had a lot of First Amendment work at my law firm in Washington, and the free speech component of what cinema offers to the country is very important to me, that all different types of voices and themes and content and politics and religion and everything um, hits the big screen in a way that's accessible to everyone was important to me as well. And so I think the passion of the of the theater owners and, and the free speech concerns are what enamored me most about NATO and the industry. And then when Bill decided to retire, I was just thrilled to be considered as a possible replacement for him. So that's how it all got started. And you know, this industry can be intimidating when you first walk in. It seems like everybody's known each other for years and that their grandparents have known each other for longer. Right. Uh, and coming in as an outsider, sometimes you draw upon people that really take you in, that teach you the ropes and, and help you make those connections. Who were those executives at that point when you first entered exhibition in 1992 as outside counsel to get a better understanding of the industry? Wow. There were a bunch of influential people. There's a man named Paul Roth, who was a longtime independent theater operator in Washington, D.C., who was chairperson of the Government Relations Committee of NATO. He was the one actually tasked with, with hiring me as outside counsel. He was very influential. Bill himself, one of the smartest lawyers I've ever met, was very helpful and influential as, uh, as my client, I guess you'll say, since I was outside, outside counsel. Marianne Grasso, now Marianne Anderson, who was the executive director of NATO uh, with Bill and then with me, um, uh, taught me a lot about the industry, about the members uh, and whatnot. Uh, and then later on, Mike Campbell at Regal, Barry Lawson Lokes at her theater chain in, in Michigan, and she was the chairwoman of NATO uh, when I was hired full time. 
so Mike and Barry off the NATO board were the two that, that I took the most counsel from uh, in the transition of being outside counsel to, to president. Um, and then Jerry Foreman of Pacific, uh, the Pacific Arc like family and longtime chairman of NATO is the guy that really introduced me to Hollywood and introduced me to the industry. And, um, you know, to this day, Jerry's still very active in NATO on our investments committee and doing other things. So for, for 30 years, Jerry's been a, a, a great advisor um, as well. Um, and there, I mean, there's so many other names, but I think, I think I'll stop before I get in trouble. But those are, those are some of the keys. And before you joined full time, what were some of the cases or some of the concerns that the association was dealing with? Of course, NATO has evolved considerably as a trade group since 1992. But what did things look like back then? What role did NATO play in the industry? And what were some of those main concerns for exhibition? So NATO as a trade body represents its members on common issues of concern right? We don't get involved in competitive issues. We don't set prices. We don't talk film terms. We don't get involved in which theaters are building where, and those are all competitive issues to be left to the marketplace. Um, but we work on industry-wide issues that affect everyone. And there are two main components of that. One's in Washington and one's in Los Angeles. Uh, and therefore, we have offices in both cities, and I have maintained homes in both cities for 25 years. Uh, and go back and forth all the time, uh, as will my successor have to do, go back and forth all the time. Because the work in government relations in Washington and the work in Los Angeles with the industry, with the studios, with the creatives, uh, are, are both of, of paramount, small p, uh, importance. So your question specifically about some of the early issues in the 90s, the, the biggest challenge that NATO confronted then and I as outside counsel uh, was the response to violence in American society and a, a, a possible asserted connection to entertainment. The shootings in Columbine being the most dramatic turn that, that focused some policymakers blame on violent entertainment, um, video games, movies, uh, music, and so during the Clinton administration, there was a, a, a tremendous examination of the issues of violence in the media. And there were proposals in Congress to take our voluntary rating system that the MPA and NATO uh, administered jointly and write it into law and fine a theater owner $10,000 every time they sold a ticket to an R-rated movie to someone who was underage without checking their ID. There was legislation pending to criminalize uh, the, the exhibition of certain types of violent content uh, that went way beyond the laws of obscenity or, or non-protected First Amendment speech. Um, there were proposals to tax violent media. Um, and these, these, these grossly unconstitutional concepts were gaining traction and getting lots of votes in Congress. So, as outside counsel at a big law lobbying firm, working with lots of the members um, in the 90s, we, we defeated all that legislation and came up with voluntary guidelines instead. Um, and Bill and Bill Cartosian and I and Greg Dunn from Regal and Barry Lawson Lokes um, and 
uh, Wayne Anderson uh, all went to the White House with President Clinton to announce the agreement on our voluntary standards of how to enforce the rating system um, with 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 new protocols, with ratings compliance officers at theaters to make sure that we were checking IDs so that kids would not get into movies they shouldn't get into. And we announced all of that on the White House lawn in front of the media. And that turned the tide and stopped the crazy legislation pending in Congress. So that was kind of the, the big, there were lots of big issues in the 90s, but that's the most memorable. <laughs> And I'm surprised you mentioned that as the most memorable because you also went up against Star Wars fans in 1999. It's right at the beginning of the digital cinema transition, and all of a sudden, you've got Star Wars geeks like faxing you guys at your DC office. Can you fill me in on that? Because I was going through the archives here. I found that very amusing. Oh, uh, yeah. So, some of these memories you try to forget, Daniel, and you're bringing them <laughs> back up. Um, so, just as the violent media legislation was an example of what we do in terms of government relations, the transition to digital cinema is an example of what NATO does with industry relations. And the transition to digital cinema has been one of the biggest um, endeavors of, of NATO during my tenure and my career in that Exhibitors needed the transition to occur carefully. We needed technical standards to promote interoperability and compatibility so the equipment could be affordable and work better. We needed quality standards so that we weren't replacing film with something inferior. Um, and we needed an equitable business model. At the outset, the studios knew that they would save a couple billion dollars a year in the cost of film prints by switching to digital. But what was in it for exhibitors? Uh, more consistent quality of film that wouldn't than film that wouldn't degrade over time. The ability to be more flexible in programming and switching things around and maybe doing some live events and some alternative content. Um, but the, the upfront benefits were much more clear for dis distribution than they were for exhibition. So we tried to slow the whole thing down successfully um and tried to wait until there were technical standards and business models established which ended up being the virtual print fee model before exhibition would go along with the transition to digital cinema and this was a a herculean effort involving i traveled around the world to get trade associations from exhibition in places as far fetched as japan and australia and europe to join with us in demanding these standards and business models uh, before the rollout would occur. I think that was the first time that exhibition had come together globally on a topic was, was the need for standards and fair business models on digital cinema um, and kind of forced our way into Hollywood with those demands in order to make the transition happen correctly. That's the background for George Lucas not being happy with how long we were taking to make this transition. So Rick McCallum was George's uh, producer then, and he stood up at a Star Wars fan convention in Indianapolis, Indiana, and said, you deserve to see Star Wars in digital, not film. NATO is holding this all back. Contact John Fithian to get what you want in seeing Star Wars. And they bombarded our offices. Um, they, <laughs> 
Yeah, they 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 called, they faxed, they you know they went crazy with our very early electronic communication systems and whatever that was, 1999, um, and kind of shut down our systems. And and uh, then I finally created a stock response, which was if you want to pay fifty dollars a ticket to see the next Star Wars, happy to convert to digital now without a good business plan. But if you don't, why don't you let us do this more carefully? Um, which was a sarcastic response, but it worked and they shut up. But yeah, there, there, there was a division in the creative community, George Lucas and Jim Cameron and um, a host of other people wanted digital cinema yesterday and Steven Spielberg and Chris Nolan and a host of film devotees said, don't go digital ever. And the industry was caught kind of in between trying to do it correctly. So in the end, I think digital cinema was rolled out correctly. The VPF model was created to subsidize the expense. The technical standards really worked pretty well. Um, and, the, and the transition happened carefully instead of haphazardly. But it, it, was, it was a struggle and Lucas didn't help. No, at that time, that debate was an existential question for a lot of exhibitors. Uh, a lot of the coverage was how many theaters can survive this transition, especially if major titles are going to be withheld from them during this. And I think this sort of sets the stage for you taking the job at NATO, not only during this massive global transition to new technology, which is seen as an existential challenge by many, but it's also during a period we are seeing, we were seeing a lot of um, bankruptcies with circuits. You come in at NATO, you take the job, not only during a transition on the tech side, but a massive amount of consolidation with your members. Can you take us back to those early years of sort of finding yourself under such a big revolution? Well, I think uh, Bill Cartogen proved that he was pretty smart in timing his retirement. Um, <laughs> and I was a young, green, lawyer just fascinated with the industry and i did not realize that in january of 2000 when when i succeeded bill as president of nato that i needed to be an expert in digital compression and encryption technologies and bankruptcy law at the same time uh because there was a lot happening as you as you correctly state in your question and the year 2000 had a host of very big bankruptcy organizations by the top companies and also had the beginnings of the negotiation on the transition to digital cinema. So it got busy really fast. Um, but, but the industry grew out of it and pretty quickly. And 2002 was the biggest admissions year in the history of the modern business, right? And the, the industry came back to health pretty quickly after uh, after that rash of bankruptcies in 2000. So, um, hey, it's, it's the cyclical life of exhibition. And we've been through ups and downs over and over and over again for 100 plus years. And every time that there's a challenge to the business, prognosticators want to declare cinema dead and, and write us off. Um, the advent of television was going to be the death of cinema. The advent of VHS was going to be the death of cinema, then DVD, then streaming, then the pandemic. And yeah, there are some downturns in the economics of this business model. But the reality is people want to leave their homes and go out 
and have a shared cultural experience with strangers sitting down the aisle from them, laughing and crying and responding to the same message of a movie on the dark screen with nothing to distract them. And they always come back. And, and you know, people have said that the pandemic has killed the cinema. And if you look at, if you look at 2022, the data suggests that the only thing missing is the number of films in the marketplace for a full return and a growth pattern uh, that's like what it was pre-pandemic and better. And the reality is in 2022, we had 63% of the wide release movies defined to be more than 2000 screens. And we had 64 plus percent of the box office compared to 2019. In other words, on a per movie basis last year, we did as well or better than we were doing pre-pandemic. We just didn't have enough movies. And, and as you look at the start of 2023, January is substantially above January 2022 and getting pretty close to 2019 numbers. As you look through the schedule, particularly the summer, we got a bunch of great movies appealing to all demographics and different genres. And that only grows to the end of the year and then gets even bigger in 2024. So we think, you know, we, we think like always the last prognostication of the death of cinema is, is completely wrong. And if you look at our growth patterns now, it's on a way back up to significant strength and health over the next year or two. And one of the things that you brought into your role since you came into NATO full time is a sense that you're not just a lawyer. You're very outspoken in the press. You're very outspoken in the media to correct the assumptions that have always chased this industry for many, many decades on its impending death. The sky is falling narrative is with you at NATO found a counterpoint uh, throughout the years. Was that something that, how did you develop that? Uh, how did you that introduce that into the role? Because it's not just like your predecessors of simply being a lawyer. You're involved the role into being a spokesperson in, in many regards. First, thank you for that for that uh, observation. Um, I appreciate that. NATO was in the '80s and '90s um, a very successful trade body focused on government relations and focused on legal issues like compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act and not really a, a public representative of the industry very much, right? Uh, that was just the choice of the board back then. They wanted a pretty discreet focus on legal and governmental issues. You know, with the expansion of the media communications age and so many different ways that people develop their opinions and make their consumer choices based on a flurry of vibrant communications channels now, NATO had to evolve. Um, and part of the reason why I was interested in the job is that the board of NATO knew it needed to evolve and knew it needed to be more public facing. And so I was, I was given a pretty clear mandate coming in um, to do more of the public representation um, of, of NATO than had been the traditional mandate. And I had had a lot of, you know, a lot of public speaking press experience before I grew up in politics and, you know, my dad was in Congress and I would be on a campaign trail dealing with the press with him. And then as a lawyer, I had a bunch of clients 
that needed public representation. I represented the Major League Baseball Players Union during the strike of 93-94 in baseball and had a lot to do with their messaging there. Um, and so I brought a little bit of messaging experience to the to the job. And uh, but more importantly, we built a team at NATO that responded to the increased mandate, right? Um, my longest colleague, Patrick Corcoran, who's our chief communications officer, um, was right there with me as the communications public representation of NATO expanded. Um, and Patrick has probably the best relationship with trade reporters of any, any industry rep um, in, in Los Angeles. And he's based there. Um, and so he's really helped drive the public representation and communication side of what, uh, of what NATO does. And, and honestly, the thing that makes me um, the most proud of, of the career at NATO is not what I did individually, but the team that I amassed and, and, uh, and grew and what that team has done. Uh, and there are a bunch of really, really talented people here right now. Um, Patrick's my longest running uh, partner in crime, if you will, but our rising star, Jackie Brenneman, who's our executive vice president and general counsel, um, is, is, is doing a bang up job uh, launching our cinema foundation and doing a bunch of other work. Um, I got a brand new CFO who's really, really helping us get the finances and the budget all put together. Our conventions team, Mitch Neuhauser, Matt Pollock, and team, I think is the best um, public event organizing team in the industry. Um, and I, you know, hired those guys 12 years ago. Um, and this is not, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm wandering way off your question, but hey, what are they going to do? Fire me? <laughs> um, I, I'm most proud of the, uh, of the team that we have assembled at NATO. Um, Todd Halstead, who's our director of government relations, um, has a ton of experience in, in public issues. You know, his first job in life was on Capitol Hill, and then he came to NATO um, and, and has been our GR person now off and on for a very long time with a great skill set. Kathy Conra, who recently retired as our as our COO, um, is one of the you know one of the best organizers I've ever I've ever worked with. You know, before Kathy, uh, Marianne Grass, and now Anderson, um, same kind of fantastic organizational skill sets. And you know, the list goes on and on. And I'm probably getting get in trouble now for leaving people out. But the but even though I am often the public face of NATO, uh, I think what the members understand is that the team. At NATO is extraordinarily solid, and um, and and that's where a lot of our success comes from. Is that we work together really well as a team. You mentioned the inclusion of an events division at the National Association of Theater Owners. Can you walk me through that acquisition of Show West and ensuring that what is now known as CinemaCon would exist within NATO's strategy? Can you? Can we go over that that process and the strategy behind it and how it's been in the last decade plus? Yeah. So when when I started full time in January of 2000, it wasn't just bankruptcy law and digital cinema transition. It was also Bill kind of handed me um, some ideas on the future of conventions and, and events. 
Um, and I'll, I'll give him a lot of credit for this, but um, I finished the negotiations of the sponsorship deal with the Sunshines on Show West at that time, a show that was founded by NATO of California long before I became president. And, and that show grew to the point where NATO of California decided that it should be professionally managed. And so they, um, they, they, they were looking to bring in the Sunshine Group, Bob and his brother Jimmy at the time, and eventually Bob's nephew, Andrew, um, uh, all really good organizers um, to run and then to eventually buy and take over Show West. And so in January of 2000, I was jumping right into negotiating what that sale would look like. And so NATO California sold the show to the Sunshines, but National NATO agreed to sponsor the show as our official convention. So it was kind of a three-way deal where NATO California sold the show to Bob uh, and his team, but part of that was contingent on us agreeing to 10-year sponsorship where it was our official show. And so we, we started under my tenure by sponsoring Show West, uh, and that worked really well for 10 years. Um, uh, Bob Sunshine uh, is is a, a genius event organizer. I mean, he's the one that trained Mitch Neuhauser, um, and then I hired Mitch <laughs> later. Um, uh, but at the end of that 10-year period, instead of instead of renewing the sponsorship agreement, uh, you know, despite the talents of the Sunshines, we concluded with our board that a for-profit third-party organization is always going to have slightly different motives in running an event than we would ourselves. Um, and so, you know, in, instead of renewing a sponsorship agreement with, with, with Bob, we decided to go our own way and do our own show and, uh, and you know, make it a nonprofit event. Uh, yes, NATO takes significant revenues out of CinemaCon, but the, but the idea of launching CinemaCon was to have a show owned by the membership of NATO and designed, you know, to advance the membership of, of NATO. Um, and so we launched CinemaCon in 2011. Um, I hired Mitch and Bob's nephew, Andrew, uh, originally, and, and other folks to run CinemaCon. Later, we brought on Matt Pollack and, and Andrew uh, left to go do something else for a while. Um, but we have, we have a really good team uh, that also includes Matt Shapiro, who's, who's the genius of the trade floor and, the, and so much of the operations of the show. Um, and that team has put on CinemaCon now, what, 11 times, I guess. We missed one because of the pandemic. Uh, but the show has grown to be the most significant gathering in the cinema industry globally. We have about 100 countries worth of people, exhibitors and suppliers that come to the show. All the major studios support it now. Um, and this CinemaCon should be really fantastic. So CinemaCon is the biggest part of our events. We also hold some educational programming in the fall with a summit. Uh, and now with the launch of the Cinema Foundation, these efforts are being done in partnership with with several different groups. But yeah, we're very proud of CinemaCon. Um, a lot of people, some of our members doubted that we should take it on and do it. And now I think it's one of the most successful things that we've done. And as those members became more globally focused, 
parts of multinational entities as opposed to family-owned companies, which we still have family-owned companies, it's fair to say. But this business is a lot more global now than it was in 1992 when you first started working with exhibitors. Early on, at the very beginning of my career, I, I tried to reach out to bring exhibition leaders around the world together on a common purpose because I saw that the, the challenges or potential benefits to movie theater owners were migrating from mainly local concerns to global concerns, right? In the old days, it was what's our local tax policy? What are our local distribution models with the studios? And it was different all around the world. But as, as the migration to digital cinema was taking place, as, um, as, as you point out, as consolidation was happening in exhibition, uh, it became apparent that we needed to have some kind of unity of purpose globally as exhibitors. And so I spent a lot of time uh, traveling the world, talking to exhibition leaders in other territories and you know our leading companies, uh, Cinemark and then um, AMC and then Regal through the acquisition by Cineworld, um, kind of all went global. Um, and Cinepolis out of Mexico, very, very key player in multiple territories um, and so with the, with the drive of then chairman, John Lokes, um, ironically, maybe not ironically, but interestingly, uh, a local exhibitor and only operates in the state of Michigan, but John's vision was that, that we should be united better globally. Um, uh, the Lokes family have, you know, businesses outside of, of the movie theaters, uh, where they run shows and they they know something about a global marketplace and and as chairman he he was really um determined to have us go global um so we did and and we formed the global cinema federation which are partners in europe uh at unique the union international du cinema who have been stellar stellar partners of ours on many 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 different issues came together with us uh, Phil Clapp and uh, and Laura Olgott are two of the best uh, association leaders in the world, and and they partnered with us and and with Cinepolis and with Alejandro Ramirez Magana to to form the Global Cinema Federation, and Alejandro became its chairman, um, and then we built out both an executive committee of leading exhibitors around the world including Asia and Latin America and Europe and North America and Australia and India. Um, and then a broader membership that that's open to literally anybody who who's an exhibitor in the world. And, and the GCF has had some significant impacts on policy, on, on position papers, on um, guidance to exhibitors during the pandemic. Um, so the, the Global Cinema Federation has been a nice, a nice growth in international unity that that NATO uh, led the charge on, uh, but that Unique and Cinepolis had a big part to do with as well. Now we've talked about the evolution of NATO as a trade association, and we've talked about some of the successes during your tenure, but there also have been a, a fair amount of challenges. I'm thinking about moments like the, uh, the tragedy in uh, Aurora, Colorado at the Cinemark Theater. I'm thinking about the Sony hack, which, uh, which was something where cinemas were thrust in the middle of uh, as that was occurring. And of course, the pandemic. Uh, looking back at some of these challenging moments, what were the lessons you took from 
the most challenging moments in your role? Those are two really good examples of, I'll call them crisis management challenges because they were both gigantic crises that demanded kind of immediate action. Um, there are some fascinating stories in, 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 in that Sony hack that maybe someday I'll write a book, but, um, but the lessons learned were that quick, the ability to have quick communications with exhibitors across the country and around the world, the, the ability to work closely with government bodies and law enforcement um, and have those relationships pre-established so that when you hit a crisis point, you know who to go to immediately. Um, and, and a membership that will respond literally 24 seven to a crisis, right? So we created a network of security officers where uh, we have 24 seven access to somebody at, at all the companies and we maintain that database in-house at NATO so we know that we can reach people on a local, regional, national, or international basis instantaneously if we need to. Um, and unfortunately, we've had to use that network several times, right? I mean, um, there have been several movie theater shootings in my tenure. There were, there were significant security threats around the movie Joker when it first came out. Um, the Sony hack created a, um, a crisis of national politics and international politics. Um, and so, yeah, we've, we've, we've become kind of a adjunct to law enforcement on, on a lot of issues. And that security network is a, is a pretty important part about what NATO does. I got, I got to tell you one story. I got to tell you one story. You can edit it if you want. That's um, it. So during the Sony hack, the first, attack was obviously on Sony and it was a massive hack, right? And then the second threat was to movie theater operations. Right. And there was it, an actual threat made yeah. that any theater that plays this title, yes. there is a violent threat there. You were thrust uh, in the middle of this. It was. And so, you know, we talked to all the security experts. We talked at length with the Department of Homeland Security. We had multiple calls over a very short time frame with the security experts at all of our theaters and the CEOs. And in the end, most, most major circuits decided not to play the movie at the outset. Right. And, and the irony is that our contacts at DHS told us this threat is real. It's coming from North Korea. Uh, you should, you should take it seriously. And so when you have governmental device like that, you really got no choice but to but to but to pull back on on the release of the of the movie, right? And so we get through all that, and then I'm flying to London in mid December for both meetings um, and the celebration of my birthday, which is in mid December. And the phone rings, and you got to listen to what president what the president is saying right now. Um, and President Obama said, I wish the movie theater industry would have talked to me because I would have told him it's okay to play this movie. Um, I love President Obama, but <laughs> yeah, um, we had actually asked for a meeting with the president and his chief of staff before I left DC to go to London 
in order to discuss this because we were very worried about what DHS was telling us. And yet that was the public response, right? And, and we had to work it with the White House. We had to work it with Sony's top leadership. Um, in the end, we protected our cinemas the best that we knew how, but it was, it was, uh, <laughs> it was wild, Daniel. That was a wild one, right? I remember that very clearly, uh, even that press conference. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the example, as you mentioned, of even within your crisis communications, even through going in every step, there's new twists and turns in, in this role and in ensuring the safety of your members and moviegoers. Uh, now that we've talked about the, the challenges during your tenure, what are some of the successes that you look back on that you're the proudest of during your time at NATO? It's difficult where to start because the, because we've gotten involved in so many things over the last 30 years. I think that working with the creative community to promote and support the primacy of theatrical releases is the most important thing that NATO has done and the most important thing that NATO will continue to do after I retire. There are many in Hollywood who make movies for the big screen and want their art form seen on the big screen first with an exclusive window. And we've worked with a lot of those folks uh, over time to, to make sure that our supply of movies and the existence of a theatrical uh, window uh, continues. And the two most, <laughs> there are a lot of really significant names, uh, but Chris Nolan and Emma Thomas as husband and wife filmmaker and production partner stand uh, above anybody else in this industry in what they have done to support the theatrical experience. Marie and I just had lunch with them yesterday <laughs> and preparing for CinemaCon because I am very, very, very honored that as my last official act as NATO president on Thursday night at CinemaCon, I get to present our Spirit of the Industry Award to, to Chris Nolan and Emma Thomas for all that they have done for for the for the cinema and for the theatrical experience, um, and I'm really really stoked that's that that's my that's my mic drop is Chris Nolan and Emma Thomas, man, because they are genius filmmakers, deeply caring people about the art form, uh, big First Amendment people, and and I would start there on the most significant thing NATO's done in in over decades is is develop those types of relationships with the creative community in Hollywood to support supply of movies to theaters. I mean, what Chris and Emma did and Warner Brothers in bringing Tenet to the market um, when nobody else was bringing movies to us, you know, was a big deal for exhibition. And well, I could go on and on about Chris and Emma, but show up on closing night and you'll, you'll hear me talk about them. Uh, the film supply and the relationship with the creative community is number one. Um, number two is successfully managing more often than not the government relations impact on our members both positive and negative um working to get cinemas reopened safely by lobbying all the state offices during the pandemic is a, is an example of that uh, we hired epidemiologists and developed safety protocols and and explain to government officials all across the country and as it turned out all across the world that you can operate cinemas safely coming out of this pandemic and that's what got them open again that's what got films back um 
So a, a positive approach to government relations is, uh, is right up there with a positive relationship with the creative community is kind of the two most important things. Um, I mean, the grant program that, uh, that Congress approved for our mid-sized and smaller exhibitors was gigantic. Um, the, the lesser known tax provisions of the net operating loss carryback issue, which sounds like a snore, but was extremely important to our biggest members. Uh, that happened during the pandemic. Um, and so gov positive government relations uh, is, is right up there with industry relations. There are a bunch of other ones, but those are the two most significant things NATO does and hopefully will continue to do well. And if you could have another crack at something, anything during your tenure, what would it be? If I could have another crack at something, I never would have said on stage at CinemaCon that I watched. Um, well, Fierce a Slave, I was there. Fierce a Slave. I was I, there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that was the dumbest thing I've ever done in my career. So and you, you were on stage during the state of the industry. You said yeah, you had yeah. seen 12 Years a Slave on at home on DVD, and that unleashed. Uh, yeah, that was my first cinema con, by the way. It was uh, oh, an interesting well, you were moment. There. You were there for my stupidest moment. So uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say, third row. Yeah, I was. I was trying to describe the power of cinema and what it's like to have an immersive experience, and that. It's so powerful, in fact, that this, you know, I'd watched all the best picture nominees in theaters except for one because it was so intense. Um, it was meant to be a compliment about the movie and about cinema technologies. And instead, oh my God, the folks at Fox went nuts um, uh, and then made a huge deal out of it. And I, you know, Chris Aronson and Jim Giannopoulos are, are two dear friends that I, I, uh, I respect tremendously. Um, but man, they really generated a ton of press about how stupid I was and they were right. Right. So there you go. That's if I could take one thing back, that was, that was the worst day of my career. <laughs> all in all, not that bad. All in all, not that bad when we take an account of everything, John, thank you so much, not only for your time, but for, the decades plus here in the industry, uh, protecting the uh, the interests of uh, not only exhibitors, but everybody else in this ecosystem that, that works with and for exhibition. Thank you, Daniel, for doing it. Appreciate it. And that was John Fithian, the retiring president and CEO of the National Association of Theater Owners. Thank you to him for joining us. And thank you to my colleagues, Rebecca Polly and Romeo Duchenne for joining us. We've got more daily episodes coming to you from Las Vegas all of next week from Monday to Friday, starting April 24th. Don't forget to subscribe. The Box Office Podcast is a collaboration between Box Office Pro, the box office company, and Record Edit Podcast. We'll see you again bright and early on Monday morning. <laughs>